Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. When you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to be reading Matthew 13, 31 through 33. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Thank you, Lord, that your promises are sure. And thank you, Lord, that you are in control. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes today, that we would see what you want us to see in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. Have you ever wondered, even in the midst of a worship service, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Let me answer. You are here in the big picture because God led you here. God wanted you here. God willed that you would be here today on May 22nd, 2011. Corresponding to that, you chose to be present. You, you showed up. But we are here as a group, not because we have everything in life wired, but precisely because we feel our need of God. And because of that, and because of who He is, we are inclined to worship Him. And to thank Him for providing for us and sustaining us in every way. And even as we, in this moment, and in the midst of looking in the Word today, look to Him to meet our every need. Whatever joy or sorrow or hardship or victory we are currently experiencing. Basically, we need Jesus and His perspective. That's why we're here. But what do two little parables have to do with that and have to do with us? Possibly everything. Quite possibly everything. If you've ever wondered how the church of Jesus Christ will succeed in such an evil world, if you've ever wondered how God can take such a diverse and flawed group of people and through them change the world, then these two parables should encourage as well as challenge you. Because in them, Jesus provides assurance and perspective that we need. So in two short parables, Jesus is giving us showing us the 
small to great nature, the micro to mega nature of the kingdom. Basically, Jesus is showing us how his kingdom grows. Now, these two short parables are sandwiched between the wheat and the weeds and its explanation. So it comes in the context there. You'll remember that Matthew chapter 13 contains eight parables of the kingdom. They're all about the kingdom of God. And the flow of the chapter runs from the opposition that the gospel received and the negative response to to God's rule in Christ that happened and... It runs all the way to the fact that believers and unbelievers will coexist in the world until Jesus returns. Now, in the first of the eight parables, Jesus explained four kinds of responses, three negative, one positive. That people would make those kinds of responses to the gospel during the period during Christ's first and second comings. Now, in the second of eight parables, which we saw last week, Jesus showed how evil would be present during that time and what the destiny of believers and unbelievers would be. Now, of the eight parables, two are explained, six are left for us to wrestle with. And that's where we're going to be going for the rest of chapter 13 with the unexplained parables. The sower and the wheat and the weeds came with Jesus' own explanation. Those were exceptions, though. The norm from here on out is that they are unexplained, and so we must take great care as we seek to interpret these parables. And since these are the first of the unexplained parables in Matthew 13, I think that now is a good time for some instruction on how to handle parables accurately. How do you handle them without twisting them into all sorts of weird teachings that mislead many. Now, we tend to see parables as stories that teach a spiritual point, and they are. But they go beyond that. The the Greek word uh, parabole gives a sense of mysterious sayings that don't wear their meaning on their sleeve. You can't tell just by looking what they're all about. So you must handle them with care. So three things about handling parables accurately before we get into these two parables. Number one, with parables, seek to understand the meaning. It's very simple, but you want to go in seeking to know what they mean. You don't want to leave them a mystery. You need to understand that Jesus is making a point. Jesus is making a point, and a parable needs to be interpreted. You've got to, you've got to uh, accept the challenge to figure out the meaning. Jesus, in chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, highlighted the primary purpose of parables. In there, he said that they were given to reveal truth to those who accepted truth, to those that accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And they were also intended to conceal truth from those who reject truth. They were meant to arrest the attention or be passed by. To be Christ's disciple is to live in the realm of his revelation. To have things revealed to you from God in the word of God, by the spirit of God. And so while people have differing opinions about the parables, the interpretation is knowable. So you need to seek to understand what they mean. Trust God 
for understanding. The second thing about handling parables accurately is don't try to identify every element in a parable. You're going to get way off if you do. You're going to over-spiritualize elements that God did not mean in the way that you might take them. You need to understand that not everything in a parable has a pointed connection. So seek the meaning, but don't force the meaning into every item in a parable. For example, in, in the parable of the leaven, some people see the Trinity in the three measures of flour. Not something God intended for you to see. You can see the Trinity elsewhere in Scripture. Not here. Uh, many weird teachings have sprung up from someone's overactive imagination or desire to come up with something other people haven't come up with. But God meant parables to be simple and understandable uh, to those who believe. The last thing I'll mention about handling parables accurately is that you need to figure out the big idea and leave the rest alone. You understand that the point that Jesus is making and then keep moving. I like the way Dennis Sorensen puts it. Get in, read it, get the point, and then get out. Stop interpreting. It's like when you go to the refrigerator for a glass of milk. You open the door, you get the milk, you pour it, you put it back in, and then you close the door. We tell our kids that all the time, right? Close the refrigerator door, because something might fall out or fly in, right? You don't want something coming into a parable that God didn't mean to be in that parable. So get in, get what you need, and then stop interpreting. Read them, understand them, let the other parts of the story just be. Now, if you have trouble figuring out Christ's parables, don't panic. You're in good company along with many sincere and intelligent believers who have come to differing conclusions about them and who have struggled with them. So it's no need to question your salvation if you can't figure out all the parables. Or you, they seem to be puzzling to you. Um, as with all of Scripture, there is, for each passage of Scripture, one interpretation, but many applications. But God has allowed some things to, to remain unclear as to exactly which interpretation is correct. And that's part of the beauty and the mystery of the parables. And with those things in mind, still, Jesus meant for his disciples to get the message of these parables. They are not explained. The reason why, presumably, is because they got them. Do you realize that they heard three parables in a row, and when they got alone with Jesus, they said, explain to us the parable of the wheat and the weeds. They got these other two. In fact, Jesus asked his disciples in verse 51 of chapter 13, have you, understand all the, have you understood all these things? And their answer was, yes, we have. So the two explained parables and the six unexplained parables, they were able to say, yes, we got it. We got the point. Christ's followers, chapter 13 and verse 11 tell us, have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. That includes the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, both of those parables. So what did the disciples understand that we need to understand? What did 
they see that we need to see primarily it's this we need to see these two parables as two parables with one point two parables with one point they share the same DNA DNA they, they, they each have a main character one main character and they each teach one main truth now they're one that the disciples easily would have understood immediately would have understood and it's this God's kingdom starts small and grows large influencing many and transforming all who believe God's kingdom starts small and then it grows and it seems insignificant but it would one day grow to a huge group of believers and Jesus likens the kingdom to a mustard seed or a lump of yeast that grows from seemingly insignificant beginnings to attain a a great size and have widespread influence more than any would ever imagine so let's look at the first parable first verses 31 of 32 in that first parable Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed mustard seed was the smallest seed that was dealt with in gardens of those days mustard seed was a common way to refer to something really really tiny really small it was a proverbial way for some, a proverbial saying for something tiny Jesus in, in Matthew 17 and verse 20 says this they were asking him why they couldn't cast a demon out well the disciples were asking Jesus and he said to them Matthew 17 and verse 20 because of your little faith for truly I say to you if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you he's talking about little faith and and because you have little faith he's starting with now even if you attain to the level of mustard seed you'll be fine jesus was comparing this seeds to the seeds of the gardens in palestine of that day many seeds are smaller you can pick out a smaller seed than a mustard seed today but of the plants grown at that time the mustard was the smallest of the of the garden plants the major crops that they had had seeds that were much larger you got barley and wheat and beans and lentils but the mustard seed starts small but in verse 32 jesus says it grows into a tree so that the birds of the air basically live in those branches they make nests in the branches mustard plants in those days were basically large shrubs but they could sometimes get up to 15 feet tall pretty large for a garden plant and large enough for birds to lodge in now the first problem we run into is that many people see the birds as evil in the kingdom they say "Ooh, that that must correspond to the evil that's present in the kingdom and so they point that out and and show that you know in some places birds are 
are evil, are, are evil influences. It fit the parable of the sower, verse 19, birds coming and taking the seeds. But in those days, um, birds, or any day really, birds making nests in trees is a good thing. Birds making nests in trees refers to what is, is good and signifies protection and, and safety and, and refuge and shelter that a, that a mama bird would give her, her young, their young. And, and, and this is really a reference to several Old Testament passages. I'll refer you um, primarily to Ezekiel chapter 17. In Ezekiel chapter 17, and we'll begin in verse 22. There's a parable there about two eagles and a vine and God is declaring things to be, to come. And in verse 22, it says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, will set it out. I will break off from the top most of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it may dwell, will dwell every kind of bird, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. Over in Ezekiel chapter 31 and verse 6, God is speaking a word and he says, Of a, of a tree that all the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young and under its shadow lived all great nations it's, it's a picture of the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom of God it was not for Jews only but the door would be open for, for all who believe so these verses speaking of the inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom and Jesus and his disciples knew the word the living word knew the written word and, and so did his disciples and they no doubt would have seen the tie-in that the kingdom would grow from a small start to a big tree giving shelter and protection and blessing to the nations key words here the smallest it comes from the smallest seed the Greek word there is mikros where we get our word micro very very small minuscule and then the word the largest, it's the Greek word megas, where we get the word mega, huge. This is not just, it's microscopic and now it, it, gets, it gets magnified, but it's microscopic and it grows beyond all comprehension. It's not just zoomed in on. Move on into the next parable, just one verse parable. It's very short, it's a really a, uh, a, a short saying and not a full-blown narrative neither one of these are but but similarly in the next parable verse 33 jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven so here the kingdom is pictured as yeast which is almost unnoticed in 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 the dough but it multiplies quietly and it permeates all that it contacts in those days, when a woman would get married, her mother would often give her a, a lump of, of sourdough 
dough and she would use that her whole married life again and again and again it would, from that first little lump so the kingdom is pictured as yeast and the lesson is the same as the parable of the mustard seed a handful of yeast permeates a lot of flour here in verse 33 three measures is almost a bushel it's a lot it's enough to feed almost 100 people with bread since bread was the major food item that isn't surprising that much dough would not have been uncommon in a household in those days but leaven and yeast and here's where we get into another question that many people bring up in these parables leaven and yeast often symbolize a corruptive influence and a, a negative influence so many people want to see this as a negative thing now it, it's true that you know especially in the new testament it's yeast is often a symbol of of an evil influence that if it is allowed to remain will mess up the body of christ it could corrupt the church and jesus warned his disciples against the leaven of the pharisees their hypocrisy their teaching it's right there in matthew 16 paul told the corinthians to remove wickedness from their midst that they were letting sin run rampant in the church and he basically says remove that and he, and he used the terminology of becoming fresh unleavened loaves of sincerity and truth in first corinthians 5 so so some would suggest that the leaven here since it's often a symbol of evil in scripture must be saying that that leaven here is some evil influence in the kingdom the only problem with that is it twists jesus's words and it doesn't fit in the context jesus said the kingdom is like leaven he didn't say it's like the flour that leaven goes into it's like the leaven so here we know the kingdom is a good thing here the the, the leaven must be also the idea here is that nothing influences and grows and transforms dough more than yeast in the in the fermenting and then baking process now in those days there was something that was just it was assumed that the kingdom would grow and that's really not the the, the most startling thing about these two parables it's not the fact that the kingdom would grow everybody knew that it was the fact that the start was so small it was it was the fact that that the relative startness the relative smallness of the start startled people they 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 many of people just dismissed it or even missed it because of that many will reject the kingdom of god and from tiny beginnings god's kingdom his ruling as king in the lives of those who believe will prosper, will grow exponentially. We're proof positive of that. Believers sitting here today are proof positive of that fact. Go back to the parable of the sower. That showed how, how a lot of sowing that we do of the word of God will be fruitless because some will reject it. Many will reject it but these two parables show how powerful and how effective and how fruitful good sowing can be in god's hands and and the end will be out of all proportion 
to its beginning and its appearance. Mustard seed, smallest of the seeds. Yeast, unnoticeable in the baking process. But the effects, amazing, far-reaching, complete. This is the point that Jesus is making. Now, when we think about this, we, we see in, in, in these two parables some things that, that Jesus is characterizing the kingdom of God by. I'll point out four things that, that God's kingdom is characterized by from these two parables. The first is relative obscurity. Think Bethlehem. Think a humble virgin. Think 12 disciples, one of whom jumped ship. Relative obscurity is a characteristic of the kingdom of God. But it moves from there to extensive growth. Extensive growth from the smallest to the greatest. Think just at the beginning of the church, 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. Exponential growth. And, and also pervasive influence. Like leaven, permeating. Think of how God has used gospel-changed, humble, bold, believing, Bible-believing people to change the world. To have an effect in every sphere of life. From science and medicine and education and commerce and law and politics and other cultural and social structures for his glory and mankind's good. And then, and then the fourth thing, intensive transformation. The kingdom of God is characterized by intensive transformation. The smallest seed becomes the biggest tree. Flour becomes bread dough. But neither are the same again. They don't go back. Extensive growth and pervasive influence and intensive transformation will characterize God's kingdom. And these four things have matching implications for us. These four things have matching, corresponding implications to our lives, to our lives individually, to our households, to the church that is gathered in, in local assemblies, and then to its influence out in the world. There are things that pertain to us as we live in light of the, God's mediatorial kingdom, Christ ruling in the lives of those he has chosen, those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So let's match these up. With regard to relative obscurity, little is great when God is in the mix. Little is great. So don't despise small beginnings. As God says, don't despise the day of small things. Trust God to grow his kingdom in his time. He will do it. God's work his ruling in the lives of those he's redeemed may look unimpressive, may look ineffective, but appearances can fool you. And in the end, no one will be able to ignore Jesus. He who is the center of our lives will be unescapable to all. But until then, be patient. Until then, Remember that human assessment has little value. Until then, remember that Christ in you is your hope of glory. 
speaking of extensive growth, expect many new members in the kingdom, some of whom you may not like. Many of whom you may not like. I think of Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he was saved so dramatically by Jesus. The early church had wanted nothing to do with him. It took Barnabas to come alongside and, and explain to the people what had happened in his life. They didn't believe it. Thank God for the members he adds as he sees fit. Well, you wouldn't have picked them. You're not God. The Gospel Coalition speaks of the church being a counter-cultural community for the common good. It states this, because the gospel removes both fear and pride, people should get along inside the church who could never get along outside of it. Because it points us to a man who died for his enemies, the gospel creates relationships of service rather than of selfishness. Because the gospel calls us to holiness, the people of God live in loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. The gospel creates a human community radically different from any society around it. The gospel brings together people in the church that would never get along outside of it. They'd be fighting outside of it. Problem is, sometimes they fight inside it, right? Praise God, that's not happening here at Grace. By God's grace, we'll stay that way. But I know how it goes. I know how life, I know how things go. We all know how things go. You, you're, you're, you're in a place for a while and you get comfortable and you're comfortable in your spot and, and you start to define everything around your spot. I know how it is. I'm that way too. I'm just like you. Or worse. I, I see some of your faces. I know. But here's the thing. Here's how it filters. It's wonderful to talk about the global aspect of this the how god was going to do this and it and i read a quote like this which i read you before by the way because i love it so much i had a pastor mentor who never used the illustration twice but he was a much smarter man than me all i can say is it's wonderful to speak and to read and to hope for the ideal but we live where we live and, and here's how it filters down to the local level. Here's how to maximize your involvement in the church. You know, you could say it like this. This is your church, and it's not your church. We are the church. It's not a building. So we are the church, so in that sense, this is your church. But Christ is the head of the church, so in that sense, this is not your church. Here's how it works in churches. You may have been at a church for a long, long time. You say, praise God. Everyone there loves you and is thankful for you. But don't let your ownership become possessive and turn inward and insist on what you want and define everything around your spot. Let it be what God intends. Open, open hands that say, wherever, whenever, with whomever, Lord, that you desire, grow your kingdom here. Your kingdom come, your will be done, right here as it is in heaven. 
So don't hold others at arm's length if you've been around a long time. Embrace them. Invite them into your labors to join with you. I also know how it goes when you're newer at a church. You know, you haven't been around a long time. Well, first of all, if you're newer, wonderful. We love you. We're so glad you're here. We welcome you. But don't let whatever baggage you brought in hinder you from fully diving in with us. Jumping in full bore. Don't stay an outsider. Don't look sideways at those whose investment overshadows yours by virtue of their, of their tenure and longevity here. Don't think that they're trying to somehow control things. Join them in their labor. Invest deeply in the gospel and people. That's what God wants us to do. See, inside of outside this assembly, whether it's an organized thing or, a, or an organic thing, which, which seems so much freer, do ministry together in your homes and neighborhoods and communities and schools and all over the place. Go together as a countercultural community formed by Jesus' shed blood, being shaped into a dwelling of God by His Spirit. That's God's intent for the church. God's intent for the church is not for us to sit in our spot and go do our thing. It's to intermingle with the body. All of them. You don't have to be best friends with everybody. Nor can you actually know everybody. So what do you do? Here's what you do. You check your attitude towards those in the church with whom you have differences or from whom you are different. And, and, and remember that we are to love Jesus, one another, and the world, and that our witness will only extend as far as our love is willing to go. The gospel brings people together inside the church in its extensive growth that would never get along outside of it. So get along, the world will marvel. And get along doesn't mean put up with. It means engage with. It means love. It means invest. It means willing to be spent and be spent for each other's souls. That's what it means. We're called to last what loves forever. We're called to love what lasts forever. Jesus, the Bible, and people. So expect growth. Because Christ's church, Colossians 2.19 tells us, grows with the growth that comes from God. Now, a couple more things. With regard to pervasive influence, Christ in you will draw others to himself. Christ in you will draw others to himself. Jesus, speaking of the cross, said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Basically, all who believe. Look in John chapter 3. It's so well known, verse 16, but the following verses are lesser known, lesser read, lesser memorized, and never put up at football games. 
or baseball games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Unless you think that means everyone who's ever lived. Just read verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Put that up at the stadium. God chooses to do his work through weak, frail human instruments. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay so that the excellency of the power may be clearly of God and not of us. We're ambassadors for Christ as though God were speaking through us, making an appeal through us for people to be reconciled to God. All who don't believe. Starting right here and going out. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. God's work does its work. God's word does its work in those who believe. And the message is delivered by others who believe. And we don't do the saving. Only God does the saving. And we just say we're unworthy servants. We just did what we're asked to do. We're just doing our job. As we do our job, the gospel will succeed. Tim Keller says it this way, we share the gospel in love. We share freed from fear because we no longer need the world's approval. We have God's. We share not because we have wisdom or righteousness, but because we lack it. And, and we want to point others to the true source. We share knowing that God can save anyone. So when God's people do what he says, preach the word, love the church, love your neighbors, influence happens. Obey God's revealed will and his word, and you will bless and influence people. Last thing. Last thing in terms of intensive transformation. God will change you and others who believe. God will change you and others who believe. Life change happens not because we set it up to happen, but because God wills it. And don't think it can't happen. Don't think it can't happen. A life-changing gospel changes lives. Think of John Newton. Prideful slave trader turned blind, humble servant who was able to say, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And he was able to, to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. New creation in Christ, transformed. So what if you don't know Jesus today? What if you say, I don't know Jesus, so what do I do? Well, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. As simple as that. God, completely holy and good, created us to reflect his glorious character and, and rule, but we rebelled and chose our own glory and our own rule instead. We didn't want God's kingdom. We wanted our kingdom. So we incurred God's wrath. 
against that sin. And we were dead in sin, unable to do anything for ourselves, to save ourselves. So God sent Jesus to reestablish God's rule by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. To pay for God's wrath against sin. He rose in victory on the third day, and we and all are called to turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. Put your trust completely in the work of Christ on the cross, completely sufficient to save you. That's what you need to do if you're not a Christian. Mark Dever says the decision is costly. Therefore, consider it carefully. It'll cost you everything. It's urgent to make it soon. It is urgent to make it soon. And, and it's worth it. You won't regret it. Ever. And what if you're a believer and you say, well, I'm discouraged by the lack of response I see to the gospel. My, my labors are in vain. I, my neighbors seem just as hardened to the gospel as ever. My coworkers have, want nothing to do with it. What do I do then? Be assured that God is in control. Be assured that his kingdom will grow. And last thing, what if you're so distracted by everything else in your life, you're like, think about kingdom things? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I would just say re-engage. Your team needs you. Your team needs you. God intends for a growing body to experience significant change and this is what he brings about in his church as he takes us through the sanctification process, making us more like Christ. That's what is happening right now. God's kingdom starts small. It grows large. It influences many and it transforms all who believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that from relative obscurity comes extensive growth beyond all comprehension and from that growth comes a pervasive influence for people's good and your glory leading to transformation that only you can bring about but Lord we know that that is why we can work as unto you in everything that is why we can give our best for Jesus in our thoughts in our words in our actions that's why you want our best in every sphere of life Christ being the center, us turning our eyes upon Jesus and humbly and boldly in step with the Savior who bought us. Lord, we pray in assurance, knowing that you will win, knowing that evil will be destroyed, and knowing that Jesus will reign. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for your assurance. And we thank you for the challenge to trust you to a greater degree. We pray in Jesus' name.